us free let us all be grateful for a land so fair as we raise our voices in a solemn prayer god bless america land that i love stand beside her and guide her through the night with the light from above from the mountains to the prairies to the oceans white with foam god bless america my home sweet home god bless america my home sweet home lord jesus thank you so much again for the, what we do believe to be the greatest nation that you did create but it's by your word and by who you are and god we just pray again that you would turn our faces back and there's no other way to turn but to your word and to truth and to your spirit so god we turn our faces our eyes who we are toward you and seek to submit to your will and your way and your word and god i pray that you would just have the seed of your word to find good ground in our hearts this morning that we lead this place bearing fruit in jesus name amen amen thank you pastor jason and musicians Am I on? Okay, good, good. Thank you so much. Turn within your Bibles to John chapter 18. We're going through the Gospel of John verse by verse, and we come today to chapter 18. Uh, we, last week we were in 18 as well. We're going to start in verse 29 in just a moment. I remind you of these three chapters speak about condemnation that was poured out on Christ. The crucifixion, where he paid the price for us, and the conquering, where he conquered the grave and is victorious today. These three chapters that we come to now is a tremendous portion of the Word of God. I said to you last week, these three chapters are the pinnacle of Holy Scripture. They're the centerpiece of human history. So it's these three chapters. Now, let's pick it up in verse 29. This, the setting is, they have brought Jesus to Pilate. Verse 29. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring you against this man? Father, bless your word to our hearts. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen true story about a marine just a few months prior to World War II his name is Walter uh, Ozipoff and uh, he was a, a jumper parachute jumper and he took some men up that he was based in uh, San Diego and as the story tells it was a beautiful blue sky and they took a plane up a DC-2 a 
a cargo plane, and they were going to do maneuvers, diving maneuvers. There was 12 there, and, uh, and Osipov was in charge. He also had two pieces of cargo to uh, send out of the plane by parachute. Nine men made their jump without any problem. Osipov then threw out one of the uh, cargoes, and, but when he threw out the second one, somehow his ripcord had got tangled in that second one. So when he threw it out, it automatically pulled his ripcord and his parachute came out while he was standing right next to the door of the uh, airplane. So immediately and violently he was jerked out of the airplane, hitting the side of the airplane. He broke two ribs and fractured three vertebrae. His parachute got caught in the landing gear on the back of the airplane. So he's hanging, dangling, 15 feet below this airplane that's going 110 miles an hour. If you look back at your screen for a moment, here's a picture. Compliments of the archives of the United States, the, the National Archives. If you could see that close enough, you could see there was a, a paper clip that's got his picture. That's his picture clipped to the uh, photo that was taken. And uh, that little circle there, uh, that is Osipov. And he's dangling. You may can tell from the picture, you probably can't, but he's actually, after he'd been out there only a few minutes, as the wind was hitting the parachute and so forth, things were adjusting, his straps came off, and he ended up hanging by one ankle, by one foot, uh, hanging in, in midair. He was, he was actually uh, hanging by a thread. So the, the pilot could not land the plane without crushing him. And he only had a certain amount of gas, and the gas was running out. So he decided, and, and there were no radios in, in all the planes in that day as there is today. So he couldn't even radio the base. So he flew, he, he came back to the base and flew around the base and, and lowered the plane to about 300 feet. And he was going around and around the base. And uh, as people talked about it later, they said they thought, they, he, they thought he was towing some kind of cargo or something. They, they didn't know. And finally, a lieutenant, another Marine, Lieutenant Bill Lowry, realized what was going on. And he shouted to another Marine, John McCants, and said, there's a man hanging up there. So they ran to a SOC-1, which is a, a small plane with an open cockpit. In other words, the air hits you in the face just like a motorcycle, you know, or a convertible. So open, open cockpit, and it's a two-seater. One person in the front, one person in the back. So they jumped in. It didn't even get clearance to take off. He just simply radioed the, the, the tower uh, and, uh, and said, uh, make ready, I'm taking off. Now, the big plane had no radio. So they took off. They tried to get under 
the big plane and so they could rescue uh, Osipov. The guy in the back, uh, McCants, he was standing up in the back seat of this airplane trying to match the speed of the big airplane 110 miles an hour. But the, uh, the wind was rough, and so they were in danger of killing everybody. They tried to get close enough, and then, and then they tried again. And since the big plane had no radio, the lieutenant that was driving the little plane, he motioned to the big plane to go out over the ocean. So they started out over the ocean. By this time, he only has 10 minutes worth of fuel left in the big plane. So now they go out over the ocean, and again, the... Uh, uh, Lowry, the lieutenant in the small plane, he motioned for him to uh, elevate and get higher where maybe the air would be a little uh, more cooperative, smoother. And so they went up to 3,000 feet. So now he's hanging 3,000 feet from, with uh, one foot upside down. He's bleeding and blood's dripping off of his helmet. And so now the little plane approaches again to try to... Uh, rescue him. Here's another picture for you. This is actually a painting of the event. This is also uh, is from the National Archives. It now hangs, this particular painting hangs at Quantico in Virginia. And so the small plane trying to hold the exact same position and, and rescue Osipov. So he got a little closer and a little closer and inched up and inched forward. And finally, <clears throat> it was where uh, the guy standing up in the back seat could actually reach Osipov. And they reached him and they held on and they got him into the plane. There was no room for, for him to sit. So he was just laying on the top of the plane with this uh, guy in the back trying to hold him on and also trying to cut him loose with a knife. But he, he, since he had to hold him with both hands, he couldn't hardly cut him loose. And so Lowry, who was flying the plane, inched the plane up with great precision. People on the ground were watching by now, uh, or they were when it was close, and they were saying it was like, it was like angels were guiding them. So he inched his way up and his propeller cut the, the line of the parachute and, um, and he was free. Now the big plane made it back, the DC-2 made it back just fine, but now the, the cord had got tangled in the rudder of the small plane. And so it was hard to maneuver. So they finally got it back to the ground. Osipov was still conscious through all of this. And uh, as the plane pulled in, he could hear people cheering and clapping and rejoicing. And, uh, and then he passed out from, uh, from the pain and the trauma. He was in the hospital for six months. He was in a body cast for, uh, for three months. And as soon as he got out and they freed him, uh, physically gave him his, you know, paper saying he could go back to work. He went right back to jumping out of airplanes again. Can you imagine that? 
not long after that, World War II came. But before that, the Secretary of the Navy presented Lowry and McCants, the two guys who rescued him with the distinguishing, distinguished flying cross for, quote, uh, extraordinary heroism. And then it goes on to say, in one of the most brilliant and daring rescues within the annals of military history, end quote. Osipov served in World War II where he on one occasion accepted the, the uh, surrender of one naval base and that got his name in the New York Times. He was the head of the Marine uh, Corps Intelligence, the director, for two years. He retired and then passed away in 2003. He was 85 years old. What a story of rescue. I don't know if any of you men or women here have jumped out of airplanes in, the, in your military service. There's one of our members that we know certainly did, Com Command Sergeant Major Faust, had at least, or had over 300 jumps. And many of those jumps were behind enemy line. We appreciate so much those who have given themselves and risked their lives for our freedom. How thankful we should be. You know, this nation was founded on the Word of God and our forefathers believed the Bible and we were set up as a nation under God and a nation with a biblical worldview. And so in that sense, it's these three chapters again. It's these three chapters that really make our country great because it's founded on this rock of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These men, these two men rescued a fellow Marine and they risked their lives, but Jesus gave his life to rescue us from sin and from punishment, to redeem us, to give us spiritual freedom. Thank God for national freedom and personal freedom, but thank God for spiritual freedom, freedom from the guilt and the penalty of sin. Well, let's pick up our, our verses now back in chapter 18. I want you to back up a little bit though because I want this portion is about the trials. I'm going to speak a little bit about the trials. Look at, uh, look at verse 13 if you back up some. It says, And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, which was the high priest the same year. Now, look at verse 24. Now, Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. So we're following now kind of his, uh, what's going on, who he's going to, and so forth. Now pick up verse 28. Then led they from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment, the praetorium, it is. And it was early, and they themselves were, uh, went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled. 
but that they, that they might eat the Passover. It's a remarkable thing, and no doubt, as John writes this, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, he sees the great irony in the Jewish people. They were willing to crucify Jesus. Not only that, were they willing, they, they were pushing to crucify Jesus. And so they were not afraid of any moral defilement, but they were afraid of ceremonial defilement. They wouldn't go into this praetorium because it was a home. It was the palace of, of Pilate. Pilate was a Gentile. The oral law said you, you couldn't go in the house of a Gentile. If you did, you were ceremonial, ceremonially defiled. Now, the Passover was coming up. They didn't want to miss the Passover. So they would not go into the palace, but they could shout, crucify him. The irony is pretty remarkable. Now, Pilate lived most of the time in Caesarea. Caesarea was over by the Mediterranean Sea, and still is, of course. Uh, but during feast days, he would come and live in one of the palaces that Herod the Great built uh, so that he could uh, keep peace and order and, and so forth. And so he was there in the city. And they bring him now to Pilate. And then Pilate, verse 29, went out unto them and said, What accusation bring you against this man? Now we're before Pilate. If you look back at your screen for a moment, I want you to see the, the six trials, as they're normally called. They're really, some of them are more like hearings. But six hearings are trials of the Lord. The first three are religious by the Jews. To Annas, then to Caiaphas, then to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling body of 70 leaders. And... Uh, John doesn't mention them, but Matthew does. By the way, the Gospels never contradict each other. They complement each other. They tell different details of the story, so when we put them all together, we get the details. And so we see in John tells about Annas, but he doesn't uh, tell about the Sanhedrin. He only mentions Caiaphas in passing in the verse we read just a moment ago. And then there are three Roman trials or civil trials before Pilate. John records that for us. That's what we're looking at right now. And then before Herod. Now, John does not mention Herod at all. But when, when uh, Pilate finds out that Jesus is from Galilee, he sends him to Herod. Now, Herod lived up in Galilee where Jesus was raised and he was the governor there but he came into Jerusalem also during the feast to help uh, try to help keep uh, and keep things orderly and so he was there also so Pilate sends him to Herod and Herod uh, says he find, he found no fault in him worthy of death sends him back to Pilate and so then the story picks up in verse 39 after Herod. So with those things in mind, let's look now at our text. Pick it up in verse 30. They answered and said unto him, 
If he were not a malefactor or a criminal, we would not have delivered him up to thee. So he says, what accusation? He's a criminal. What they really in the Sanhedrin found him guilty of was blasphemy. But blasphemy was not very important to the Romans. So they didn't want to use the term blasphemy, so they talked about him being a king and rivaling Caesar. And so, uh, verse 31, Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him, and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put a man to death. Now, some, when the Jews executed uh, the death penalty, they used stoning. The, uh, at this point in time in history, for the worst criminals, the, uh, the Romans used crucifixion. But it was unlawful for the Jews. They could, con they could condemn a man, but they had to have the consent of Rome, therefore Pilate, to actually put someone to death. Verse 32 says that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spake signifying the death he would die. Now Jesus already mentioned that he would die of crucifixion, that he would be lifted up, he said, like the snake in the wilderness. If the Jews by themselves had executed him, it would have been stoning. Several things wrong with that. He wouldn't have been lifted up. And also his bones would have been broken, which the prophecy in the Old Testament said not one of his bones would be broken. And so he was to die in God's plan of crucifixion. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thine own self or did others tell you uh, tell it thee of me or tell it to you about me this is a kind of an obscured uh, phraseology he's saying did you come up with this on your own that I'm a king or are you just repeating what you heard other people say it's interesting as Pilate sees himself as the judge over Jesus but the truth was Jesus is the great judge of the universe and it was Pilate that was on trial and uh, so he gives him this first kind of obscure answer Pilate answered am I a Jew in other words I don't care about this religious stuff I'm not a Jew and I don't care about uh, their laws and so forth and your own claim. Then he says, Thine own nation and the chief priest had delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? He's assuming it must be something pretty bad if they handed him over. And here's a cut to Jesus himself. The people you say you're a king of are the ones that turned you over. Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then were, would my servants fight, but I should not, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. You know, what Pilate really wanted to know if, was, is Jesus a threat 
to the kingdom somehow in raising a big army to come against Rome. And Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not of this world. You know, in Luke it says, the kingdom of God is within you. Right now, the kingdom of God is within every believer. One day it will be on earth for a thousand years, and then it will be on earth and in heaven for eternity. But right now, the kingdom of God is within us. It's a spiritual kingdom. Jesus said, I'm not raising an army, and, uh, but I'm calling people to truth, calling people to myself. We will see that as we read on. Look at verse um, 37. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Uh, uh, well, tell me, are you a king? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. They accept my message if you are of the truth. Now, it's a little obscure here. You see it better in some of the other uh, Gospels. But when he says, Thou sayest that I am a king, to this end was I born. That is, to be the king that you're referring to, to this end was I born. So the answer is yes, he is a king. The, uh, the new King James puts the word, uh, puts an extra word in there. If you look back at your screen for a second. Uh, it says, Pilate therefore said unto him, Are you a king then? Jesus said, you say rightly that I am a king. You're saying it right that I am a king. The Amplified, which is, you know, not just a translation, it's an amplification, which kind of explains the text as it goes. The Amplified says, Pilate said unto him, Then you are a king? Jesus answered, You say it. You speak correctly, for I am a king. Certainly. I am a king. And so Jesus confirms before Pilate that he is a king. Look at verse 38. Pilate saith unto him what is truth. Because he said, I am come to witness of the truth. And everybody that is of the truth heareth my voice. That can be translated. Everybody who loves the truth. Everybody that accepts the truth. Everybody that's looking genuinely for truth. They hear my voice, and uh, they follow me, as Jesus would say in John 10. The sheep hear his voice, and they follow him. By the way, I, I'm, I'm sure, or at least I'm relatively sure, Herod, I mean Pilate, did not catch this. But there's some really interesting phrases in verse 37. Look back at it for just a second. He, in the mid, middle there, he says, To this end was I born. So Jesus was born. There's his earthly birth. He says, and for this cause came I into the world. Here is his pre-existence. He came into the world. He already existed before. He was born. There's his physical body. And he came into this world. There he is in his deity. And, uh, and for the reason was to bear witness of the truth. And then Pilate says, what is truth? Probably skepticism here. Just like in our day, the 
philosophers in that day all disagreed on what truth was and they would argue, you know, they would get on the internet and, and get in Facebook and other social media and they would argue about, uh, Karen's looking at me oddly, <laughs> they would argue about uh, who was right and who was the truth and so forth. So maybe uh, Pilate was a little frustrated with all of that arguing about what truth really is. Or maybe he was just a skeptic. But at any rate, he, he says, what is truth? The significant thing, though, is that he turns and walks away from the one who had the truth and from the one who was the truth incarnate. And so he says, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and said unto them, I find no fault in him. Three times, just in the Gospel of John, Pilate's going to say, I find no fault in him. By the way, Herod said a similar thing too. He found no fault in him. Two times in Luke, Pilate would say, I find no fault in him. Verse 39, but ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will you therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? By the way, Pilate here calls him king of the Jews. Uh, I wonder if Pilate was moved by this man, Jesus. He doesn't just say he calls himself king of the Jews. He said, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Four times. Pilate is going to call Jesus the king of the Jews. And then, of course, he puts the, the placard on the cross that says king of the Jews. So he comes out and says, who will I release? Verse 40, then cried they all again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Luke tells us not only was he a thief, he was a murderer. But, of course, the people wanted Jesus. They were moved by envy, Luke would tell us. And Pilate knew that, Luke tells us. You may remember, too, Pilate's wife had a dream about this man. And uh, so Pilate thought he could get Jesus off of his hands, so to speak. You know, at one point he's going to wash his hands in front of everybody and say, I found no fault in him. But the people chose to release a robber and a murderer instead. You know, in that first chapter it says, Jesus, the world was made by him. And he was in the world, and the world was made by him. He come into his own, and his own received him not, but as to as many as received him, to them gave he the authority to become the children of God. Pilate could have embraced the truth and received the Savior, but he didn't. So he had no freedom from sin and from the guilt or the power or the punishment of sin. Now I don't, I'm not showing a video today because it's the fourth I decided to do something a little different but I have a, a video about a 12 year old boy he and his family came to America to find freedom 
I think you'll enjoy it. It's about six minutes long. Let's watch it. I was the first one to get it from the mailman. I ran up our entire apartment building screaming and hollering, and everybody knew. 12-year-old Fetty Gobriel's dreams were about to come true. His dad, a chef in Cairo, Egypt, got a job in Boston. The family was moving to America. We idolized almost or daydreamed about this idea of coming to America, the land of freedom, of opportunity, better education, better future. However, those hopes and dreams didn't come out the way Fetty pictured. He and his family arrived a year after 9-11. Kids would say stuff like, hey, are you um, Osama bin Laden's cousin or uh, Saddam Hussein's cousin? So. I was buried under all the verbal harassment, as well as the physical bullying as well. The rejection, feeling like an outsider. Fetty says the legalistic Christian faith he grew up in often made him feel the same way. There was the, the shame piece that was reinforced at home and at church. I need to be good enough for God to love me and accept me. And that depended purely on my works and my and my good performance, uh, which I can never do enough of. The part of it that wore me out the most was feeling powerless against my own sin. I sin Monday through Saturday. I go to the priest on Sunday, I confess my sin and rinse, wash, repeat uh, this same cycle. So I'm in a permanent state of inability to please God. Why am I even here? By his teen years, Fetty had drawn one conclusion. God is ticked at me. God is angry at me. God doesn't like me. I'm not enjoying anything. Everything is, is difficult. Everything is challenging. Uh, I want to escape that and go to a place where I'm not being bullied, where I am having fun, where I am enjoying myself. In high school, Fetty found friendship in a group of classmates. While it marked the end of the bullying, it also led him to smoking pot, drinking, sleeping around. He also started buying into the beliefs of some in the group who were atheists and telling himself he could live a life free of guilt and shame. I would have said, like, I don't believe that God exists. And maybe underneath that, in a more honest moment, I would have said, I don't want to believe that God exists. I like what I'm doing, and I don't want God to tell me to do otherwise. Instead of finding freedom and happiness. It was just this downward spiral. I'm awake, I'm aware, I feel futility and purposelessness. Let me go back to the drugs in order to numb that feeling, this underlying uh, a restlessness, right? Where I just don't have peace. The teenager fought with his parents often. To keep the peace, Fetty would go to church on occasion. He was still living at home his freshman year of college when a family they knew invited them to visit their church. Fetty says it was much different from what he was used to. People there were genuine, sincere, they were loving, really free, full of joy, full of peace, who loved Jesus. Also different was the teaching about a loving God ready to forgive all sins through Jesus Christ, a message that would lead Fetty's parents and brother to fully commit their lives to Jesus. The fights and the tone and the anger at home was completely changed. Uh, my mom had a lot more peace. As for Fetty, he continued drinking, smoking pot, and partying, unable to accept God's message of redemption that had changed those around him. The resistance was, 
I can't believe that God would ever forgive me for all of the terrible, wicked, horrible things that I've done. I'm not at peace anywhere, at home, at church, with God. I'm not at peace with myself. The summer after Fetty's freshman year, his dad insisted he go with the family to a church conference on the 4th of July weekend. Reluctantly, Fetty went. But as he listened to the speakers, God's message of love and forgiveness finally broke through. I'm hearing about the cross and the fact that Jesus died for my sin in order to forgive me and to cleanse me and, and to give me a new life and to reconcile me with God. And I felt like God just cornered me with his love and just embraced me in his arms and said, hey, son, I love you. I've forgiven you of all your sin and I'm giving you my spirit. And that was, that was my moment. That was my moment of, of surrendering my life to Christ. Fetty made a clean break from his lifestyle, losing all desire for drugs and alcohol as he discovered his new identity in Christ. The way that I think about myself anymore is not this horrible, terrible, wicked, no good sinner that God hates and despises. That was me, but because of the gospel and because of my position now being in Christ, God looks at me and he's very well pleased. God looks at me and he sees Jesus. And that conception of who I am before the sight of God changes everything. After college, Betty married Renee and became a pastor at the Arabic Baptist Church in Boston. Every 4th of July, he celebrates his own personal Independence Day. Independence from sin and death and hell in the grave uh, because we've been united to Christ. So the symbolism there is not lost on me. God met me and, and completely transformed me and renewed me by his grace, uh, which, you know, I wasn't there looking for God. But, hey, God, God was there looking for me. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for these three chapters, for the cross and the resurrection. Thank you that our freedom is built upon this. We thank you for those of us who belong to you. We've received freedom from the punishment of sin. But if there are people here who have never received you as Savior, May they do so, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Stand with me, please, if you would. Words are on the screen. We're going to sing together. If you'd like to come for prayer, we invite you to come. Wherever you are, just come and kneel. And if you need help, somebody will pray with you or answer your questions. Let's sing. Thank you. Thank you so much. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, that was not very enthusiastic. Let's, this is your chance to say amen in church and say it loud. So let's, let's try again. And everybody said, amen.
Oh, that's much better. You may be seated. Pastor Jason's coming.